to the Humanity Church Podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. We are wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Proof of Life, where we've been taking a look at these vital signs to inform us of whether or not we're actually fully alive. Now, of course, we have vital signs to let us know whether we're physically alive, like our heart rate and our respiratory, our oxygen levels. But it's harder to determine, am I actually alive? What what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like for us when we find ourselves struggling with life and what it means to be fully alive? And so we're going to wrap up this conversation today and taking a look at John's final words to us. He's been giving us these proofs. We talked about the light test, the passion test, the truth test, the world test, the love test. If you don't know what those are, go back and listen to the podcast. We don't got time for it today. But we get to the very end of this book that John's been writing, 1 John, and this is his final words to us. After all of this, this is what he wants us to know at the very end of what it means to be fully alive. He says this in 1 John 5, 20 and 21. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being his son, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now this seems like a strange afterthought right here, right? Like he gives this big explanation to us. Like he starts out this whole book with, I've tasted, I've seen, I've heard life, and I want to explain it to you. And then he very methodically goes through and gives us these distinctions for life. If that you live in the light, you will find yourself alive. If you live in the truth, you will find yourself alive. If you avoid the ways of this world, you will find yourself alive. If you find yourself engaging in love, you will be alive. He gives us these powerful, powerful signs of life. And then he ends it by saying, and it's all found in Jesus. And then he ends this whole masterpiece with, oh yeah, one quick thing, dear children, keep yourself from idols. It seems really out of place. What does this have to do with anything? Why end this beautiful masterpiece with this? See, perhaps what John is doing is he's giving us one last antidote to death. One last warning that keeps us from from fully living and then moves us towards death. And he says that one thing, that if you are not willing to look out for it, will kill you. And that is idols. It's not really a common word that we use. Well, it hasn't been other than with like American idol, right? And that's a whole different type of idol. But we oftentimes don't use this word. But an idol is a resemblance of something that's oftentimes used for worship. 
See, it's not the real thing. It's some type of thing that is a stand-in for the real thing that we bow down to. Historically, in cultures, they've been figures made of wood or stone that would represent a god that the people would worship. And so they could put this idol in their home or they could put it in the center of the village and everyone could come and worship the idol. It was a stand-in for the real thing. In fact, historically, some tribes actually had idol makers and when they got done building the idol, their whole life was designed to just build this idol. And once the idol was built, the tribe would come around and chop off their hands so that they could then say, this idol was not made by any human hands here. True story. <laughs> and so it was a stand-in for the real thing. It was, it was a farce. It was a counterfeit for the real thing that they found themselves in. Now, here's the thing. We probably don't have totems in our possession. You probably don't have any type of icon or stone idol or wood idol that you worship or bow down to. But this warning from John is still incredibly relevant to us today. Let's just look at another example of how this may show up in our lives and why this final strange warning from John may be one of the most important for us in this whole conversation. There was this story in the scriptures about these two brothers, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was born first, they were twins. He was kind of the strong, manly hunter one. It says he was hairy, which is a very weird ver adjective, right? But, but I guess it was to describe that he had a lot of testosterone in him. And so then there was Jacob, who was more of like the quiet one, the cook, and the second born. Of course, in this time of history, the firstborn got everything and the secondborn got nothing in terms of inheritance. And here we find ourselves in this moment where Esau is out hunting and Jacob is cooking and it comes to this moment that's pivotal in their relationship in Genesis 25. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quickly, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. He was hangry right here. And this is why we call it Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. Now, I don't know if he's about to die because the scriptures just say he's famished, but he, he's definitely like, I'm, I'm not doing well, man, right? And then he said, what good is a birthright to me if I die? But Jacob said, swear to me first. He swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, this sounds crazy, right? Selling your entire inheritance for a bowl of stew and some bread. I mean, could you imagine this? Like saying, hey, I'm so hungry. All I need is this bowl of lentil stew with some bread. You get the car, you get the house, you get all of mom and dad's money, you get all the stuff, you get all the inheritance, just give me the stew. Now we read this and we're like, how on earth could anyone do this? You would think that he would just be like, all right, let me go find something out here real fast so I can just keep myself going. But he sells everything for this bowl of stew and it seems insane, but how often do we do the exact same thing? We trade life for a moment of comfort. We trade the, the abundance of life that is in them for, for a moment of control. We trade the life that is available to us for, for a moment of, of our reputation or an image or success or our independence. And look, our idols today might not be carved and we cannot touch them or see them often, but we bow down to them just the same. And so oftentimes we bow down to these idols of comfort and control and reputation. And every single time we do that, we settle for the counterfeit for the farce that is available to us. Because like Esau, it seems like a quick fix. 
It seems like in a moment of discomfort, this is the better trade-off. And then we find ourselves slowly dying in the midst of it. I remember as a kid, there was this time where I was sick and my mom gave me Tylenol. And I asked her what the Tylenol did for me. And she said, well, it takes away the pain. And I said, well, what? and I remember as a, as a seven-year-old putting the pieces together and saying, but does it cure me? And she said, no, 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 it, it doesn't cure you. You just won't feel the pain anymore. And my poor mother, as a seven-year-old, I remember spitting out the Tylenol because I thought, this is not the cure. This is just covering up the pain. I need something that's gonna cure me, right? <laughs> because as a seven-year-old, I realized, I don't want just something that's a cover-up. I want something that's actually gonna help with what's going on internal with, internally with me. And see, oftentimes in our lives, what we're looking for is something that's just gonna take the edge off. Something that's just gonna take away the pain, something that's gonna alleviate the discomfort, something that's going to remove us from the fear and anxiety of feeling out of control in this life, the overwhelm, the heartbreak, the disappointment, the despair, the letdown. And so we're looking for something that will just cut the edge off. And oftentimes we find those in these idols. And every single one of these proofs that we've been talking about over the last few weeks have a counterfeit. They have an idol that's connected to them if we're not careful. And John's final warning is to keep us from the counterfeit that we find ourselves. See, the first proof that we talked about is the love proof. It's found right here in 1 John 5, 1 through 2, as he's writing the end of this. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Christ born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. See, the proof of life here with the love test is that we actually choose love in every circumstance, in every situation. But the counterfeit to the love life is the arrogant life. And that is the counterfeit that we oftentimes settle for. And here's what the arrogant life tells us is that we can love God, but we don't actually have to love other people. That I can somehow have a private spirituality with God and it has really nothing to do with anyone else around me or any other person or giving myself to them. But the fact of the matter is that we were actually created for community. And now we say that so much here at Humanity and it gets so lost in translation at times and it loses its edge. But you cannot exist without the presence of other people. If you try it, you will die. Maybe not physically, but you will certainly die mentally, emotionally, internally. And it's a slow, painful death. But we were called to this. But here's the one catch. That in order to engage this proof of love, to fully live out this proof of life, you actually cannot be your own source for love. You have to have some type of external source that is fueling this love, that is, gets sent externally or else we find ourselves depleted. And here's the thing, because we need an external source for this love, we find ourselves eventually getting to the place where we have to decide, am I willing to be dependent on God for this type of love? And who loves being dependent on God or anyone else, right? I don't know about you, but the idea of being dependent on someone, it gives me, it's cringe, right? It's just like, no, I don't want that. I, I wanna be able to do it myself. I wanna be able to stay in control. I wanna be able to have the power. I want to be able to choose when to turn it on and to turn it off. I wanna be able to choose my way. But what this says is that I actually have to be dependent on God and then dependent on other people. It's something that, Inside of all of us, we resist at some level. Some of us more than others, but we resist the idea that we have to be dependent on others to fully step into this. And 
in the resistance, when we resist and resist and resist the idea that I must be dependent on God and dependent on other people and that we are interdependent with one another, when we resist and resist and resist, we'll eventually move to the counterfeit that says, no, I am God and I get to call the shots. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. Because what it essentially says is, no, I am the source, and I am the center, and I make the decisions. And because we weren't made for that, our love falls short. At best, we can love people that are like us. It's easy to love people that are like us, right? And so at best, that's where we find ourselves. And we have to ask ourselves the question, have I got to the place where I actually need another? Whether that is God or someone else. I coach a lot of people in life, and very few times in our conversation do people start with the admission, I am unloving, or I'm arrogant. It usually takes a while to get there, but, but usually we don't start there, right? In fact, most people, when I say, hey, are you, would you consider yourself a loving person? They would say, absolutely. And I say, would you consider yourself arrogant? Absolutely not. We'll get there eventually in the coaching conversation, but, but it's not something that we lead in. See, in fact, most people would say, no, I'm incredibly loving and I'm incredibly self-sacrificing. But see, the mirage of this proof is that we say we're loving because we love easy people. We love the people that are easy. We love the people that are like us. We love the people that are convenient to love. We love the people that are like us in the middle of this. See, the reality is that we struggle to love those who are not like us, and we resist loving those people fully. So here's a question that we have to ask ourselves, honestly, is who are the people in my life that I just tolerate? Who are the people in my life that I have just chosen to simply coexist with? Or who are the people in my life that I've just decided they're not worthy of my love? See, the moment that you swap love for toleration or the moment that you swap love for coexistence, you've settled for the counterfeit of this proof of life. And see, the arrogance comes when we assume that God doesn't love them so we don't have to either. And it always leaves us wanting it always leaves us longing for something else when we decide that we're God and our love is sufficient and it is discriminatory in who we fully give it out to. The second proof that we talked about is the truth proof, and it's found in the next verse here in 1 John 5, 2 through 3. It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And it says, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. See, the proof of, of life here with the truth proof is that you are actually living and leaning into the truth of God. That you're, you're like, hey, God, what is the truth to the universe that we live in, and how can I fully engage that with every part of our being? And here's the counterfeit. The counterfeit to the truth life is the religious life. Now, that actually may seem counterintuitive because you would think that letting go of a life confined by the scriptures and a life confined by truth that you would make you less religious, religious being a very dogmatic system of beliefs that we followed. And you, when you think about the religious, you think about those that are constrained by truth. Those who, are limited, those who are living in boxes that can't really, can't really think freely in the middle of this. But the reality is, is that when you lean into the truth of God, when you lean into his truth, it is always connected to freedom. 
That in the scriptures, truth and freedom are like cousins, and they go hand in hand everywhere together in the middle of this. And one thing that we are set free from when we lean into the truth, when we step into the truth, is the need for religion and ritual. That we are actually released to live a life fully running. It actually says that in the scriptures. That when we step into the truth of God, that we are released to run in this life. That we are given momentum in this life that was not available to us before this. See, when you are aware of the tr- when you are unaware of the truth, or you know the truth and you're just unwilling to live in it, you know God's commands, you know how he's called us to live, and you're just like, yeah, I'm not up for that. You actually start to move slowly because you find yourself in the dark. And when you don't know where you're going and you don't know what's in front of you and you don't know what obstacles you're about to hit, you start walking very carefully because you don't actually know what's in front of you. You don't actually know what are the consequences of my actions. You don't know when I do this, this happens, or when I don't do this, this doesn't happen. And so you are not freed up to run. You find yourself calculating every single move, trying to figure out, is this going to bring me life or is this going to bring me death? And you find yourself incredibly religious in your decisions. But when we find ourselves leaning into the truth, we are free to run. See, truth is, also, is often connected to freedom, but truth is also connected to light. Scripture says, your word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. I used to work up in running springs, and part of my job would be to walk around a camp at night. And it was so critical that I always had my flashlight with me because it would be pitch black dark. And I worked with high school students, and they would all, you know, especially like the machismo boys out there would be like, I don't need a flashlight. And I'm like, have at it, man, right? <laughs> And and eventually they would be right next to me because I would be the one with the flashlight and they would be the one tripping all over everything. But let me just tell you something. Never once when I've been out in the dark hiking through the mountains with a flashlight have I ever thought, man, this this light is so constraining. Man, this light, it's just so non-inclusive, right? I've never thought to myself, man, why is it showing me this rock? That's so arrogant, right? That's so constraining. I mean, you don't need to show me that rock. That rock could be anything, Let me decide if I'm going to walk over that or not. Don't show it to me. (laughs) See, the light actually releases us to move freely. The light actually releases us to know, hey, if I make this decision, this is going to happen. If I step there, that's that's going to happen. If I don't step there, this is what's going to happen. And it releases us to run in the middle of it. No one ever feels like the light limits their life. It always releases us into this. And when we step into the truth of God, it always releases us. See, when you don't have the light, you become incredibly rigid in your movement. See, it's not that you are free from ritual and religion when you reject truth. You just find yourself having to make up your own truth and to make up your own rules to reality. And in fact, you become more dogmatic and more constrained in what you follow because you are literally making it up as you go. You are literally trying to figure out, is there a rock in front of me? Is there a log that I'm about to trip over? Is there a ditch that I'm about to fall into in the middle of this? And we find ourselves becoming incredibly religious. And it may not look like prayers and candles, but it looks like the new religion of tribalism. It looks like the new religion of anxiety. It looks like the new religion of fear. It looks like the new religion of attempting to control everything around us because you need to create routines and rituals to keep you safe because you don't know what's true out there. And people disregard the truth 
When they do that, they become some of the most dogmatic, religious people I've ever met because they find themselves scared. And if you disagree with my truth, you're dangerous and you need to be released from my presence. And so we settle for the counterfeit of the truth life by becoming religious in so many different ways. In fact, James 4.17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is sin for them. See, if someone's like, I'm clear about what the truth is, I'm just unwilling to lean into it, I'm unwilling to live it, the scriptures actually say they become a liar. So when we recognize, oh, I am supposed to forgive and I'm unwilling to lean into that, I enter into the religious practice of vengeance and self-protection and it becomes very ritualistic. When I recognize that I must give up this unhealthy choice but refuse, we enter into the religious practice of addiction. When we find ourselves recognizing that there is a higher calling and a higher purpose to my life that I am called to take up and step into, and we don't answer that, we enter into the religious practice of apathy and mediocrity and cynicism, and we become more religious and more disconnected, and then we wonder, where is God in the middle of all of this? See, we are called to obey because we love God, and it brings us freedom and life, not because it constrains us. See, ironically, when you step into the truth, it releases you from living a religious life. It releases you from living a life of ritual and tradition. And it allows you to step into the endless possibilities that the truth of God releases us into. It releases us from the counterfeit of religion. The next test that we talked about is the world test. And this is the proof that you're moving towards the kingdom by going against the default flow of the world and the culture around us. The counterfeit to this is what we call the social life. Now, not having a social life. Please have a social life. Don't hear me that, right? Don't hear me say that having a social life is the counterfeit. But living a life defined by what is socially and politically orthodox will eventually move you towards death going with the flow of the culture around us. I call this the lazy river life, right? Lazy rivers are great on vacation. I just got back from vacation, sat in a lazy river for about an hour. It was nice, right? You just sit there with a pina colada and you let it take you, right? And you just go. You don't do anything. You just sit there and it takes you. And this is oftentimes what happens when we find ourselves unwilling to live in the world test and we find ourselves in this counterfeit of the social life which is just like, let it take me. Whatever feels good, wherever the culture wants me to go, that's where I go, and we live a life of non-decision. Like, I don't really have to make the decision. The culture makes it for me, the world around us makes it for me, and we find ourselves, ironically, falling in line like soldiers. Isn't it interesting how this is happening so fast today? What's so fascinating to me is you can ask someone, what is your opinion on this controversial moral topic? And once you get that answer, you can almost predict their answer on every single other topic. Because people don't actually think for themselves. People don't actually have a thought process that's critical around what is actually the good thing to do? What is the noble thing to do? What is the right thing to do? What is the whole thing to do? What is the beautiful thing to do in this moment? Because we simply fall in line and follow blindly. And we call it all kinds of different things. We call it right, left, liberal, conservative. We think that we're 